going to begin Ephesians, and we'll see, there should be some interaction, but maybe not as, as often as, as usual, just because we're going to do a lot of background information. Um, one of the things that's highly important for when you're going to study a book cover to cover, as we did with Matthew, is that you need some background information. We need to have some context of what's going on. So Ephesians is one of the most influential books in the New Testament, um, outside of possibly the book of John, Romans, a couple others, it has shaped how people view the church and, and where they tend to go uh, for the faith and practice. So it's a great book to study. And what I first want to do is just kind of situate, as you can see on the map, where Ephesus is. So it's in Asia Minor, basically on the western coast of Turkey today. Okay? And so Paul took a couple visits here. So he came down from Jerusalem, went, stopped on a couple of locations on the way, and ended up in Ephesus and circled around, did, did a few different missionary journeys. But Ephesus was a major location for him. So it's an extremely important church, very influential, and the city itself was highly influential. Outside of Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch, it was the fourth largest in the Roman Empire. So major city, it was a major trading center, which if you know the ancient Near East, it's not like today. We don't, they didn't have global trade. You can't just get stuff from across the world. So the fact that it was along two major highways for trade was highly significant, both by port and by uh, highland roads, so on foot as well. Okay, So that stuff makes it very important. Another reason is it's also a major, major political city, and it had a Roman proconsul. And a Roman proconsul was basically a Roman governor. So what the Roman Empire did was so that it, since it had such a large empire, it divided it up, put temporary governors or things like that into provinces that would control the land and take taxes and do all the things it needed to do. So it had one of those seats for the proconsuls was in Ephesus. Okay, So very important. And last, it was home of the goddess Artemis, which will have possibly, it could possibly have some role in interpretation. Um, and we are going to actually see in just a moment, there is a passage where this idea of the temple worship and the goddess worship, I should say, comes into play. Okay, Because it was very ingrained there. I forgot to mention also there was a lot of sorcery. So magic is there, goddess worship is there, major influential city. Okay, so think Roman, it's very mixed. There's both Gentiles, there's both Jews, there's all kinds of people, metropolitan area, cultural center. Okay, really important. And one, one commentary even said the importance of that temple was the way, when you think of Oxford, the way Oxford, the university, is to Oxford City is the same way that that temple is to Ephesus. I mean, when people think of Oxford, you think of Oxford University. Same thing in the ancient world, where that temple was really important and goddess worship was very ingrained there. Let's look at Paul's activity there. Uh, the scriptures actually give us a lot on what he did in Ephesus. And so the first is he spent, some scholars think, around at least two years, but maybe even close to three years there. There was a brief visit in Acts 18 with Aquila and Priscilla. So he went with those two. He kind of drops them off real briefly, lets them stay there. They're going to start. Basically, they're some of the ones who help begin the church there, but he leaves. Okay? So he goes in first to the Jewish synagogues in Ephesus, does a little bit of evangelism, not really much going on. People aren't really receiving the word, and so he goes somewhere else and leaves them there to stay. So that's the brief visit that's detailed in uh, chapter 18 of Acts. So you can look that up if you'd like. The longer visit is going to be in Acts 19, where he comes and he says, even in that first visit, you know, if God wills, I, I, I will return here, right? So he even thinks about it, and after a few months, he's able to make it back. And he stays there for a couple years. 
Um, some scholars basically put that somewhere around 53 to 55, where he was actually in Acts. Um, he did quite a bit there when he was there. Uh, some of the things that are detailed in Acts 19 are, um, first of all, he baptizes a few men with the Holy Spirit, which for Paul, he wasn't big in baptisms. He didn't do that often, but he does there. And 12 people, kind of like the beginning of the church happens there. Um, he teaches in the Jewish synagogues for another three months. One of the methods of Paul's evangelism was to go somewhere, to go into the synagogues to teach the Jews, and then, usually when they didn't receive it all that well, he would teach the Gentiles. So he was a preacher to the Gentiles, yet he almost always went to the Jews first and then went somewhere else. And being a Pharisee with his background, he clearly knew how to preach to the Jews and felt that God's first message was to them and then outside to the Gentiles as well. Um, he begins to receive some opposition. Receive some opposition. There are also really interesting near the end of the chapter, or middle of the chapter, there are some magicians and sorcerers who actually turn in their books, who turn in some of their practice and convert. And that's going to play a part in the riot that happens, that's detailed later in the chapter. So Paul had a seemingly, he seemed to have a very strong witness there. And then he actually comes back later. So after he leaves after that two years, he comes back and addresses the elders at that church. So he comes back later, right before he's going to prison for a couple of years. He returns back there on his way for the last time to Jerusalem. He returns and one of his famous statements is there in Acts 20, 24, where he sums up his life in preaching the gospel. Like that, that's the message he's been given. That's, that's his whole life. So he gives this farewell address. Okay? So those are the major things that happen with Paul in the church of Ephesus. A riot also occurred. And this is extremely important, and it does tie in with that goddess worship. Basically, there's a silversmith who is annoyed because he builds the idols, right? He crafts them, and people aren't buying them. <laughs> there's a problem. Goddess worship is diminishing a little bit at Ephesus because, in large part, to the ministry of Paul. And so he starts kicking up a riot. Um, Paul is in the area. But he's restrained by the other disciples because he wants to go address the crowd. And if you've seen him throughout Acts, there are times, there's even one story where he's at a place, he's preaching, he gets beaten, dragged out. They think he's dead. He kind of gets back and goes back and preaches again, right? So Paul's kind of intense, just to say the least. Um, so he wants to go and address this crazy crowd that's kind of getting angry. And the disciples don't let him. The way it quiets down is that a city clerk basically calms them down and says, hey, Folks, they haven't done anything wrong. Paul hasn't done anything. These disciples haven't done anything wrong. And you need to settle down because if you don't, the Roman Empire is going to come in and smash us. So the way it works is the, Ro the Romans were happy if the Jews were quiet and peaceable. So at, in a riot by the Jews or by groups worshiping the goddess there, that would be a problem. Okay? So the city clerk is able to calm them down. Nothing happens. But again, the story kind of shows how embedded this worship is there, that they would throw a ruckus that, you know, Artemis is not receiving her worship. And so there are a few conclusions that we can make from Acts 18 and 19. So please go and read it. You know, I know I'm giving you the, the quick version just because it is detailed there and you can get more. Um, but the first is that there is a great amount of Jewish and Gentile converts. Okay, so both are happening. And even though, yes, Paul may not have been as successful in the synagogues. That w doesn't mean there weren't Jewish Christians. And this is going to be very important for some of the work and some of the, the exact purpose of Ephesians and some of the scriptures we'll look at. This marks the diffusion of the gospel into Asia Minor. It's really important because, it, remember, obviously Jesus died back in Jerusalem. 
And this faith is going to slowly spread out from that. And Paul is one of the major people who takes the faith to other regions. And so what happens here, he's traveling around and it really gets into Asia Minor. Like I mentioned, there was such a popular influence. Paul's ministry actually had effect so that others were kicking this up. So we can see that he seems to be effective. So much so that also in Acts 19, it talks about other people are even trying to perform miracles in Jesus' name even when they don't believe. So the name of Paul, the name of Jesus is getting thrown around. They're seeing certain things and they're even copying it. And there is that, like I said, kind of a gradual decrease in the worshipers of Artemis, which again prompted a riot and shows that Paul's ministry was effective. A large and flourishing church was there. Okay, so through the years, through his time there, he is successful. As I said, he baptized a few men. It's going to start to grow. It's going to have influence. And, and so you see, this isn't just some church. This church is actually also, I'm not going to put it up, but this is one of the seven churches that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Okay, so we can definitely see that this is not just, hey, this is another place of worship. Um, it became a leading church at a leading city in the Roman Empire. Um, so we will get into a couple critical issues. We're not going to go too deeply into them, um, but it is important to still touch upon, which is the authorship and the dating of the Ephesians. Okay? So most in church, both in the ancient church and currently, scholarship agrees that this is a Pauline work, meaning Paul wrote it. Okay? And he wrote it from Rome or possibly Caesarea. Those are two places where Paul was in prison. Either way, he is most likely in prison when he writes this. Okay, uh, There are two references in the book of Ephesians that we'll see where he calls himself a prisoner in chains and uh, an ambassador in chains and a prisoner for Christ. Okay, So both allusions to his, his imprisonment in Rome. Okay, So that would place it, because he died in 63, it would place the writing between 61 and 63. A few of the common arguments against Pauline authorship uh, in general are there's a distant language for a close connection in verses 1, 15, and then ver- chapter 3, verses 2 through 4, and chapter 6, 23 through 24. There are some distant languages, and so maybe we can catch back up to it when we actually go through this verse by verse, and we'll see it. There's a little bit of distance there that can cause some scholars to say, well, since Paul spent so much time in Ephesus, why would he speak of them on such distant terms? So maybe this wasn't the writer. Like Some scholars go as far to say there's no way he could have known them with this type of language. Okay, so that's one argument against. Um, he says they're too strong of a connection theologically, thematically, and stylistically to Colossians. Now the thinking behind that would be if you have a pseudo-writer, they call it pseudonymity, if you have a writer who's writing in the name of Paul instead of Paul himself, they might rely upon another book such as Colossians or another to hide the fact that it's not actually Paul. You know, they're writing in Paul's name, so they're going to have similar themes, right? So if there's too close a connection, it could be someone other than Paul. They also take chapters from Romans, so chapters 7 and 8, and then Galatians 2, and argue there's no way, some scholars say there's no way the writer of those chapters could be the writer of Ephesians. And the reason they might say that is because of the very individualistic aspect uh, Paul's extreme emphasis on personal salvation, justification by faith, that emphasis that is very important to the works that are not argued against as Paul. Like Galatians and Romans, nobody's really going to argue that that's not written by Paul. 
Okay, and so that's why they would pit those against that and say, no, there's no way, and then no emphasis about justification for faith. Now, the reason I don't think those are all that persuasive and why it is much beneficial to say we think that Paul actually wrote this is the style and word choice isn't all that different. Okay? This is one of the later writings, for sure, of Paul. Like I said, it's in about the last two years of his life, um, but the style isn't all that different. When you compare it to Romans 7 and 8 and Galatians 2, the problem is, like in the book of Romans, they'll say, again, that it's too individualistic. It's not looking, and Ephesians has this very strong emphasis upon the universal church and a very wide view. Okay? So there's no doubting that. We're not trying to argue differently. The thing is, they don't really look at Romans 1 through 5 or Romans 9 through 15, through the end. Uh, Romans 1 through 3, the first three chapters, are basically this universal sin. Both the Jews and Gentiles are under sin. So there's a very large perspective there. It is not simply a book that is, that is you know, those two chapters, 7 and 8, yeah, absolutely, they're very individualistic, but that's not the picture of Romans. Okay? There is a universal look there. Um, so I don't find that to be all that persuasive, to be honest. Um, and there actually is a comment on justification by faith. If you read Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, that, that's actually one of the major parts of that. It's not as clearly stated as it is in Roman, but, it, but you can see that well. So that's not even a great argument. And there's no reason to think that if justification by faith is not in the book anywhere, that it can't be written by Paul, right? It's a bad criterion for authenticity. Does that make sense? Like it's a bad measure to say, well, if there isn't this specific verse or a large emphasis upon justification by faith, uh, then it couldn't have been written by Paul. Well, he's already written about it. He's later in his life. He may be the purpose of Ephesians is different, which clearly it is. Okay, so that's why we're going to end that pretty much there and not go too much into it just because it's authoritative scripture and we do think that Paul, most of scholarship does think that Paul wrote it. Yeah. You say the writing style is similar to his other works, so it's not the same? Well, it would be different. It's not that it's not any differences or there aren't new word choices or there aren't, there are certainly different themes and purposes, absolutely. But it's not so strange to think um, that it's still Paul. Um, one scholar even mentions that the writing of Paul is, is amazing. I mean, all of them, where this is clearly the work of a master, a genius. So if you're going to take the case, okay, somebody wrote in Paul's name, they must have been extremely brilliant. You know, they must have real. I mean, the flow and the writing in Ephesians is amazing. And so Paul was quite an amazing writer, um, if you haven't read the scriptures and you don't already understand that. So it, it can be very easy to just say, oh, yeah, somebody wrote this in his name. You're not really taking into the fact that this is an amazingly written piece of work. So, yes, there are differences, but it's not so different that you can say, like you could with the book of John, right? I mean, you're going to see very... If you were to look at those, you're going to see whole kinds of different vocabularies, different style, different emphasis. I mean, very different where when you look at Ephesians compared to Romans, like it's not that different. Does that make sense? So it's, a, it's more of a nuance. Okay. One of the big things is the audience and the structure of the letter. And they go together because the opening statement of the letter is to the saints in Ephesus. Now, that underline in Ephesus, one of the reasons why we're not sure if this was written specifically to the church of Ephesus or to the area, is because our earliest manuscripts do not have in Ephesus. Okay, so there's a thought, there's a possibility that this was added at a later time. Okay, meaning that it might be better to see this letter as a circular letter in Asia Minor. So it most likely hit Ephesus and went there and also was passed around. 
And the reason we're going to look at the structure of letters of Paul is because it factors into it. So there are, is a general structure to Paul's letters, and this is really important. I mean, if you have notes, this is a good one to take just because it really helps you to understand how Paul even writes, and it's pretty amazing when you actually look at all his letters together. There is always an opening or introduction. There is information about the sender, so Paul says who writes it. Sometimes it's with Timothy, sometimes it's with somebody else. He says who the recipient is, who he's sending it to, and then also the greeting, okay? And we will look at the greeting tonight. Okay, so we'll look at this opening introduction. So that's the first part. The second part is a thanksgiving section. And this is in every single letter except for Galatians. Okay, so this idea of he writes some sort of thanksgiving section to, yeah, just give praise to God and, and thanks for that church. Okay? The third part is going to be the body of the letter. And in the body of the letter, he hits his point and he really addresses the specific needs, questions, concerns, things he has to say to the specific church that he's writing it to. Okay, so that's the body of the letter. It's going to usually be the longest portion. The fourth is called the paranesis, or the ethical teaching. So not only you have the major concerns, but then you're going to have certain ethical issues. Uh, so like Romans 13 would be an example where he talks about uh, slaves and masters and obedience and, and certain things. That would fall under that ethical teaching. Okay? And then finally, he concludes. Sometimes he gives specific greeting to people. Sometimes it's more general. Like in Ephesians, it's much more general. Now, the way this applies to Ephesians is what section is missing? What's that? The body. The body of the letter is missing, meaning that Paul does not address the specific issue to the church of Ephesus. Okay? So, he has the opening, and he has an extremely long Thanksgiving. The first three chapters are a larger picture of Thanksgiving. And then the last three are going to be ethical teachings. Okay? And then the conclusion is somewhat general. So this is why when we say, well, we're not sure, most scholars actually aren't sure if it was specifically written only to the church of Ephesus. It's probably better to see it as a circulating letter that definitely hit Ephesus, that had Ephesus in mind and all of Asia Minor as well. Paul doesn't, not the same way that he talks about, if you think of 1 Corinthians, right? He's going to really hit specific issues to that church, like for example, um, in chapter 5, like sexual immorality, right? Like that's something that's address specifically knowing the people there and knowing saying, all right, I'm answering this question. First Corinthians actually has a lot of corresponding there. Okay? So that's why scholars might think that. And that structure is really helpful even just in your personal Bible study. Hopefully that can be something that benefits you. Um, it's really good to, to be able to understand. It adds a certain level of understanding. And also like, for example, in Ephesians and in Galatians, when you see a section missing, it helps us to understand certain things. And in Galatians, for example, you can see Paul's anger against that church because the Jews and Gentiles are really split there. And he's so angry, he jumps this Thanksgiving section and hits the body. See something like that, they can add a certain emphasis. You can see uh, some of his writing in, in a new way by understanding his general structure and then the structure of, of a book. If, if you could see like, the other view, though, of why someone might question not just who it's written to, but its authorship, there's no, if there's no body in this case, if the introduction isn't there, or if in its earliest documents it's, it's not there, and other church fathers don't refer to it as being a letter to the Ephesians, and there's stylistic differences, there's differences in like the composition of the Greek and the language used, and it, like it's different than how Paul typically writes. You could you could see a little bit, right? How it, I mean. Again, I don't think it's so far-fetched. I'm not saying that I think Paul didn't write, but it's not so far-fetched to see some other 
endeavor or process going on here, which you know, is different than just saying this is a you know, letter to the Ephesians. Well, that's why it's not in the same category as Romans. Like, nobody questions that somebody else other than Paul wrote Romans, right? So I agree that Ephesians isn't in that category where it's just like, you know, you've got to be silly, honestly, to think it's anybody but Paul, where it's also not anywhere close. Some of the pastorals are hotly contested in scholarship, right? I mean, some are really going to say, you know, I don't know, I think this is Paul, and back and forth and back and forth. But it's nowhere near that either, you know? So um, the church fathers for the most part, didn't have much of a quibble about this at all. Not that that's authoritative, but I mean, there, there's a lot of good things to say. You know, there's there's pretty good reason why we would think Paul would do that. And of course, this comes back to some of your views on Scripture as well. But yes, you can see why you know, some scholars raise these issues. It's not as clear-cut as Roman, but it's it's pretty... There's no reason to pick it up and think it's not Paul, or no real reason to, to fight against that. I think you kind of discounted that the church fathers didn't have an issue with it. But I think that's kind of significant. I mean, we shouldn't just throw that in there as a throwaway argument. Um, they were so much closer in time, and, and when we did our series on the origin of how the canon came to be, you're right, that book was not even in question ever, I mean, from what I could see uh, back then. And so I don't disagree with Jeremy that you could see that there are reasons for people to question it, but I still think we shouldn't discount the fact that the early church fathers were very, very close in time as they were dealing with these, and as these letters were already circulating in the churches, and they had no issue with it at all. I think that church fathers had less of an issue with this authorship, or the issue wasn't authorship. I think more of the question was, was it a letter to the Ephesians? Okay. So let's go into some of the more important parts. of What are some of the purposes of the Ephesians? You know, Because this is what we're really going to focus as we go into this. And the first is the unity of the church, and it's best exemplified in chapter 4. This is written largely to the Gentile Christians, and it's largely written to see this work of Christ in the cross as reconciling all people of all races, religions, all issues. And the big issue then was the ethnicity issue. Do you have to be Jewish to be Christian? Right? I mean, that was one of the biggest problems in the early church was them figuring out, and that work took decades to work out. And as you can see, Paul's still writing about, if he's writing in 61 to 63, right around there, I mean, 30 years after Christ's death, there are still issues between Jews and Christians battling over, you know, who, who's more right and who's, you know, how do you become a Christian? How do you follow Christ? Right? So, the unity of the church is described as happening where Christ's cross reconciles all people. And that when they're reconciled, there shouldn't be these divisions, there shouldn't be these issues that are going on. Okay? So that's a major, major word, and it's going to be a word for us today, right? With the thousand, literally thousands of denominations and difficulties we have, we're going to have to struggle with what it means to be a united church. But it's also hopeful in the sense that, you know, sometimes we idealize the early church, right? And, and make it out to be this perfect, glamorous thing where, guess what? They were still having issues with unity. Unity has always been a problem in the church. It always has been. And that doesn't make it okay. It just makes it to sit there and say, okay, where the church has still come forward a couple thousand years now, and, and Christ's church is, is not, it, it will persist, it will endure. Okay? So we need to work through this issue because it's of the highest priority, and Paul hits that. Okay? So we will come back to that. The church is God's plan to save the entire world. We really see with this universal aspect of the church, we are going to see how Paul makes it known that through the church, which, by the way, the church are the people who make it up, right? it's not a structure. Okay? worshiping community of Christ, the body of Christ. It is God's primary 
way of salvation or a primary way to get the message of salvation out. So it's through Christ's work, but Christ, for whatever reason, as John has mentioned numerous times, has decided to involve us in his work. And in doing so, the body of Christ is supposed to work together to be this, you know, the salt and light, the city on a hill, all those type of images from Christ's teaching. Paul makes it very clear that God is reconciling the church, that he's working there, and that the church continues to expand, and it's God's plan for salvation is through the work of the church. So again, we see in both these themes a great responsibility for us and a great call that the church has to be something different in the world. And it, and it really it, it helps to even have the series that we just went through as we're going to come back to some of those issues of what does it mean to be that church where if God, if, if God is really working his salvation out in us, what does that mean for Christian formation? What does that mean for our discipleship? What does that mean for our obedience? Because one of the huge problems, obviously, in this country, as we've seen, so many people identify themselves as Christian. And there's a difficulty with that because then all of a sudden you have a lot of people who are kind of false in their discipleship representing the church. It's difficult. Identity formation is huge. And if you don't think identity is a big issue, you must be crazy because identity, we define ourselves in so many ways. I still define myself as an athlete even though I don't play baseball for any organization or anything. right? And so where we get our identity from is going to be a huge theme for Paul. And it's in him. And we're going to see the in him phrases throughout the entire passage numerous times. So many times. So we're going to really understand this idea of like our central identity is in Christ. Okay? And we have to actually believe that and, and receive our identity from that and actually live within that. So we're going to struggle with what it means to live in Christ, to be in Him. Huge, huge importance here. And the fourth one is that it's meeting the needs of the Gentile Christians in Asia Minor. The Thanksgiving section is going to focus on knowledge, and we'll see that in Paul's prayer. And the Paranesis is going to focus on love and how if you love God, these are the things you don't do and these are the things you do do. Okay, and that's and we're going to see that's where he really gets into these ethical teachings on forgiving one another and, and living as children of light instead of in darkness in, in all these different themes of what it means uh, to live in love and live in him. And there are more themes. I mean, these are just four of the central and we may even discover some together as we study it. That's one of the great ways that we can learn together is, is by studying it. So let's go ahead and just jump open with that first two verses tonight. If you do have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, you can read it on the screen. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a couple things, just simply I want to point out. You see how he has that opening where he identifies himself, he identifies the recipients, even though the inephesis might be something that's added. There's usually it's the letter is meant for specific people, and then his customary greeting, grace and peace to you. It's found in every letter that Paul writes, that grace and peace. But there's a really interesting. So the Roman greeting was rejoice, and in the Greek there's just a slight one-letter change that he changes to say grace. Okay, so he takes a secular greeting and spiritualizes it. Right? Because Paul consistently preached about the grace of God. And so what better way could you greet another person than by reminding them of God's grace in their lives, of the unmerited favor of God in Christ. Okay? So he says grace, and then he joins that with peace, shalom. So they, so they have the Hebraic general greeting. Right, People would say shalom, peace to you. 
Okay, and so he combines these two and puts them together. And what's neat for the book of Ephesians in specific, like Galatians, that issue of the Gentile and, and Jewish division is, is a big problem. And so even in his greeting, there's this implicit or symbolic message where you have Jewish and Gentile greetings coming together, being linked. So it's kind of a neat emphasis that, that maybe we don't think about, is this idea that even, in, even by saying grace and peace to you in every single letter, Paul's got this mind of Jews and Gentiles don't fight. Like he's trying to bring the communities together in a very symbolic way, even by greeting this. So I think that's, that's kind of a neat word for us today, is that there are ways to uh, use words and use simple diction to speak into people's lives and have great meaning. I mean, grace and peace is such a simple thing to say to people. And Paul wrote every letter that way and introduced that. Uh, to them, and, and they would have understood this. They would have seen how similar that was. Um, that wouldn't have gone over the head. So for us, it's, it may be strange because we don't greet each other that way. Uh, but for them, they might have seen something like this pretty clearly and said, wow, you know, this is, this is what it means to be in the body of Christ, where Jews and Gentiles and, and, and races and genders and all these things are, um, are coming together through, through Christ's work on the cross. Okay, that's the introduction to the book of Ephesians. Uh, we'll be... Going verse by verse, it should be great. There are a lot um, of questions and a lot of good things to discuss, and hopefully it will enrich our lives. And, and so let us pray as we uh, embark on the rest of the book as well in the coming weeks. Lord, we do thank you. It's so important, as we said to your word, to educate ourselves. Uh, God, to understand that, that Paul wrote these letters to specific places with specific issues in mind and um, God, we are thankful that you have given us your written word. Um, Lord, so we pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds as we study it. And I pray that our personal lives would be enriched um, and that it would inspire us to follow you more. Uh, God, we thank you for your grace and your peace. Lord, you made peace in this world by your blood on the cross. And it's such a mystery. And your grace in loving us before we have loved you. We are deeply thankful for your grace and your peace today. And pray that you would send us out this evening uh, to spread that message, to, to live it, to embody it, uh, to be people who are full of grace and peace. Um, so we praise you and, and continue to thank you for this night. Amen.